Hello, everyone. I'm really stoked because we have Matthew Errett, who is a journalist and co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation. He's the editor-in-chief of Canadian Patriot Review, senior fellow at the American University of Moscow, and host of The Great Game on Rogue News. He also authored the book series The Untold History of Canada and the recently published book series The Clash of the Two Americas. You can find the links in the description below. I'm a longtime activist. After retiring in 2000, I've followed and manifested many of my dreams. In 2012, I founded the first mostly Latino eco-community in Vilcabamba, Ecuador. I am also a producer, artist, visionary, and writer, and grandfather. Hello, everybody. I'm really happy to be talking with Matt Errett, who I'm a big fan of. I've been following him for a year or two now. Can't keep up with all his output, though. I mean, it seems like he's got a new video or essay or article or book, or, and along with his wife, who's doing the same thing. And if I was, I am retired, but if I was the type of retired who was sitting in a rocking chair, I, I would watch his stuff all the time. But unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, I should say, I'm very busy with a lot of projects. I don't have time to watch them all, but I try to get as much as I can. And the impression I get from watching all these is that God, Matt and his wife, they seem to know everything relevant that's happened for the last 2,000 years in the history of the world. It seems uncanny. In fact, I'm wondering if, if Matt, you have a, a photographic memory and a speed reader or something. I can't understand how you can do this, really, honestly. Is there some trick or secret you could tell us about how you both are able to produce so much quality stuff all the time? Oh, thanks, Tom. Um, you know, I, I I don't really know exactly. There were certainly nothing special, and I, I think, um, if anything, I read slow, and I, people often ask me, um, like, do I have speed reading tricks? And I think my the, the primary advice I tend to give people who ask me that question is just read slowly. Um, and I often reread pages, um, but read actively, you know? So when, when you're reading, don't try to just assume that what you're reading is true, but think about the mind of the composer of the, the work that you're reading um, and think, how are they thinking? What are they challenging themselves with? And write questions to yourself as you're reading a, a book, right? So that it, it's more of an active living process mm -hmm. and you're accompanying the person on their own journey so that, and also what are you reading, right? Are you reading... Are you reading, try to, try to, when you go to, you know, select what restaurant you want to eat, ideally you want to try to select not only tasty food, but also nutritious food. Um, so try to select good yeah, nutritional course. value uh, and choices for your, your intellectual diet. Um, so look for people who made discoveries, look for people who actually influenced positively world history in a good way um, and, and could walk the walk, right? So zero in on those people rather than the the many uh versions of this that are written by uh, commentators opinionators who ne didn't really influence anything or if anything did you know dampened the the potential for humanity by virtue of the life that they that they chose to live or the ideas that they chose to promote they often actually didn't contribute but but caused um a dampening effect so don't try to reduce our, our, our consumption of those things and maximize our consumption of, of good things. And then we, we just find that a little bit of the good will be awoken inside of us too. And I, I, I attribute that to anything good that I do is just finding good role models and good 
people throughout history before I lived in, in many cases, I see. but to but be inspired by. That sounds, seems like uh, common sense, what you're suggesting. And um, I would also add, like, it's it's really important to question everything and to not be attached to beliefs. Would you agree with mm-hmm. that? So, oh, yeah. Yeah, be possible. Uh, um, yeah. Um, one thing I'd like to... Well, I should mention that you've got a, a number of books out, you and your wife, and some new ones that we'll post at the bottom and, and also three websites, I think, and uh, some other areas where your work goes out. We'll try to put that at the bottom so everybody can can check in with you. Um, <clears throat> so I wanted to uh, start off with, um, would you agree that humanity is in a battle for freedom as everything that is happening this seems to be for the purpose of capturing humanity in an inescapable trap, a la 1984. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. Oh, good. I was hoping I could go along <laughs> with that. Can uh, would you, from having uh, watched and listened to your your comments for a while now, I would, I came I I came away with the understanding that the people who are whoever they are uh, doing this seem to be uh, ideologues of Nazism and eugenics. Would you agree with that? Because I've seen some of, both of you have written a lot about that shows how the West really supported Hitler in his rise and during, even during the war, and, um, and that they have been infiltrated into the United States and other countries mm-hmm. since the war. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems like the ones who are really at the top have this kind of uh, mentality. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, I'd go with yeah. that too. Yeah. Because um, I don't know if you can briefly uh, substantiate that claim because for some people it's it's too shocking for them, I guess, to wrap their head around. But uh, you have provided in your videos and papers uh, a lot of convincing proof that this is the case. I was, is it possible you could mention a few of those without going deeply into it because there's a lot of other topics I want to talk about. I guess the, the two ways I would uh, look at this um, is number one, to redefine what it was that Nazism actually was. Since we all know what the word is, hell in Germany, they know what it is to such an extent that you're not even allowed to showcase Nazi symbolism even on books like my wife's book which features a Nazi uh, symbol, um, it's called the the empire in which the black sun never set, but only to you know basically warn uh, the world in the context of her book uh, how Anglo-American Wall Street city of London uh, power brokers crafted and and uh, nurtured the rise of fascism in the 20th century internationally, both in Germany as well as in Italy and abroad. Um, but we're not allowed to sell that book in in Germany. Or in in all of Europe, actually, there's actually oh. Amazon has said no. There's laws in Germany that are extending now to all of Europe that you're not allowed to sell anything which features um, Nazi symbols, even if you're warning about the truth of Nazism and and you're not you're not promoting it. Um, so you're, but so it's obviously something very present in the minds of people. It's still so traumatizing. Would it be worth it for you to take that symbol off that book so you could sell it in uh, Europe? No. no. No, 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 it's fine. <laughs> um, but people can buy digital copies. All that to say, oh, okay. um, there's still a, a trauma where people are, are walking around with the, the shock and trauma of what happened 80 years ago, 
in Germany and abroad, but they have no idea what the causes were of what made Hitlerism in, in the first place, and thus they don't see that they're actually repeating a lot of the same uh, problems that were faced back then. I mean, Germany, to this very point, is just declared that they're at war with Russia. The edit, you know, Baerbach just gave a, a speech where she said, yeah, we are at war with, with Russia. And it's like, yeah, that worked out for you really good last time, lady. Mm. And she's speaking not just for the Germans, but for all of NATO. I mean, that that's not something we declared. Um, they're supporting actual you know, Azov battalion swastika-wearing, wolf-sangle-wearing uh, militias in Ukraine. I mean, I think most of your viewers have probably seen this over the past eight years, the rise of these like paramilitary groups and Nazi ideologues and romantics who have been used by the United States since, well, before 2014, when they did, when they engaged in their coup, um, but ever since then, and the Germans, the Americans, who said never again will we ever let such things happen. That was the the banter after World War II. Well, here we are. We're supporting. We're providing weapons, tanks, leopard tanks, other things to uh, actual Nazis um, to go to war with Russia. So all that to say, we're repeating some nasty history. So why? I, I think if people don't know what the what the Nazism was, and number one. Um, as you just alluded to, it is demonstrable that Hitlerism, Nazism would not have been successful were it not for massive infusions of Wall Street uh, and City of London assistance. Prescott Bush from the, the patriarch of the Bush family as a dynasty um, worked with Brown Brothers Harriman overseeing loans to the Nazi war machine in 1932-33 when they were the party was bankrupt. They had fallen from power. They weren't going to come back. The people of Germany didn't like them. And uh, and, the, and Hitler was contemplating plating suicide were it not for the the infusion of millions of dollars uh from wall street banks it, he probably would have ended his life and made the world a lot better now that didn't end up ha happening um he got the support he needed um, you know rockefeller standard oil provided even during world war ii um about half of the the petrochemical supplies and necessities required for the the raw materials of the nazi war machine to carry out its battle both against russia and our and, and and the allies more generally was that surreptitious? Um, was did they do that surreptitiously, or they said there was never any? Uh, they did that with uh, impunity, right? There was never. They actually did that in during the war, and and uh, nobody and they got away with that. Well, yeah, they would often, you know, like front groups. They would create like a subsidiary based in like some uh, Axis allied country, but it was wholly owned by the directorship of of the uh, Standard Oil groups. And uh, this is books have been written about this. It's sort of like become just a bit of a, a trivia truism that people just throw about, you know, just to act like they're so smart and how much they know. But it's like, no, these institutions still control so much of today's world. Like you're not putting two and two together. Um, Prescott Bush for Union Union Banking Corporation got uh, tried in the United States and at the end of 1941 for trading with the enemy for continuing after the U.S. went into war with Germany. Um, to to continue to do business to support the the Nazi machine, was he penalized for that? Did he go to jail? Well, they, they confiscated Union banking assets, and for the duration of the war, he was a bit of a, a political untouchable. But then the second Franklin Roosevelt died, and Roosevelt's key allies were purged. All you know under the uh, McCarthy, well, what became McCarthyism, but the J. Edgar Hoover dictatorship of uh, the Red Scare that began the second FDR was dead. All of his allies who understood the Anglo-American fascist, fascist machine embedded within the United States itself were all labeled commies, were destroyed, some were assassinated, many were just uh, like like uh, untouchable to the caste system. 
And then the enemies of America who were like waiting as vipers in the wings within the State Department as part of the proto-deep state took control over FDR's dead body. And uh, yeah, and Prescott and Bush were rewarded by becoming senator and his family was, was rewarded with becoming a little family dynasty with, you know, a couple of kids who became president. Mm -hmm. Also, the Dulles brothers taking, or the the one taking over the CIA and and uh, subverting the whole thing right from the beginning. Uh, I mean, he had he had contacts. Had Alan. They had contacts with uh, Hitler before beforehand, right? Oh, so, uh, Alan Dulles headed the Baron office of the CIA and and was very much colluding with some of the worst elements of the Nazi machine and played the key role in Operation Gladio. That was something that came about later on when NATO was created. Um, as a branch of NATO that involved utilizing, well, first preserving the uh, the different um, high-level Nazi assets and Italian fascist and Spanish fascist uh, unrepentant, um, you know, ideologues and absorb them into the MI6 CIA apparatus, again, over overseen by NATO later on, um, which were then put to work carrying out terrorist assassinations or, or assassinations against leaders of the West who were inclined to want to find points of collaboration with Russia or China um, or promote development of, of African countries. And I'm here talking about Dag Hammarskjöld, uh, an early UN Secretary General who was assassinated in one of these Gladio operations when his plane was blown up. He was a major friend of many countries. Uh, um, leaders of African countries who aspired to have industrial development and he wanted to help them. So he had to be taken out. Enrico Mattei, the Italian indu industrialist from Ian, I am uh, one of the biggest Italian industrialists who was again, very moral figure who was working uh, with South American and, and African leaders to help them develop um, sovereign hydroelectric dams and, and advanced power facilities so that they could modernize. He was taken out. That was unacceptable. JFK, um, my the, the African uh, book, Lumumba, Lumumba, and some of those African uh, was taken out taken three out. days before he was supposed to meet with JFK, and Lumumba was a Pan-Africanist of a very high quality, working with people like Kwame Nkrumah as well, who all felt and understood the the nature of his battle very clearly. Um, so yeah, you have all of these Nazis who are just absorbed into the machine. Part of what they're also doing is carrying out, um, bombings, terrorist activity against the population of Europe and North America. Um, controlling sort of anarcho, we're not anarcho, but they are like they, they actually are like an ideologue Maoist Leninist anarchist cells within the United States, within Canada, like the FLQ, the Weather Underground, were being shaped by these agents, uh, the the Red Brigades in Europe. Um, wait a minute, wait a minute, when? Yeah, the Weather Underground, you said it was shaped by this because uh, uh, I remember them, uh, and uh, that's a surprise to hear. Yeah, yeah, the weather under. How can you substantiate them? Together with the FLQ. So the FLQ, uh, the Front de Libération de Québec, it was all these like liberation movements, uh, with the again Maoist Leninists often ideolo ideological sort of grouping that that would control them as hives of often young useful idiots who didn't really know what they what the hell they were doing half the time, but they were being handled. So the FLQ, I, I wrote actually a chapter in in one of my recent books on the. Uh, the RCMP and Pierre Elliott Trudeau's overseeing of the FLQ uh, terrorist groups in Quebec that launched hundreds of letter bombs um, throughout the 1960s to just create a, an atmosphere of panic and terror in the population that would then run back into the arms of the state that would then protect you from the big bad uh, or the shadowy terrorist forces. Um, that was what the Red Brigades were also useful for in, in Europe. 
in Italy and, and there, there are groups in Germany as well. Um, it's just a great climate of fear and terror. So the citizenry couldn't really think clearly and they would then go to the state to, uh, to give protection. But the states were becoming more captured as we saw with JFK's murder. And then afterwards, you know, increasingly the deep, the deep state took control. Um, so in what case, about what about uh, what about right now and what's happening in Iran? Uh, I know that's a complicated situation, but uh, do you have an opinion about the protests that's going on there? Because I'd like to hear that. Yeah, no. In in Iran, it's a there was a Brookings Institute operation, um, a, a a white paper which was became policy in two thousand and nine, um, and it overlapped with Rand reports, Rand planning on um, on different color revolutionary activities that could be done to destabilize governments that are troublesome to U.S. foreign policy. Um, the focus of this particular Brookings study was uh, was on Persia and on on uh, Iran specifically, and uh, Iran has been targeted for destabilization via color revolutionary activities, utilizing human rights, other things, and uh, that's sort of what Soros has been doing for a long time. That's what they they tried in 2009 with the Green Revolution in Iran. Um, it didn't really work too well, but they tried it. Soros money and, and front groups were backing it. National Endowment for Democracy, things like Elon Musk played a key role later on in, in the current operation with Starlink satellites that are providing uh, coordinating uh, technologies for all of the various groups that are being cultivated to become, again, destabilizers. Um, Iran has problems, but uh, they don't, I mean, they are, yeah, we are being lied to. I mean, uh, in my research, well, that, that in Iran is, uh, is coordinated by the West. That brings me to another question. It's like, I've noticed in uh, a lot of your uh, work that you put out, that you put a lot of faith in China and Russia and uh, Iran and India in that whole group that is standing up against the hegemony of the United States or the oligarchs. And it seems like all of those countries are author authoritarian countries uh, to, to a large degree. And so I'm wondering how you, how you can have much faith in, in that or how, how do you see that? Well, I mean, in terms of China or Russia, we're the biggest players um, uh, in terms of the this Eurasian um, partnership. Um, Iran has increasingly come on board with a variety of, of trade and security deals with both China and Russia in a very important way. Um, India is increasingly on board too, but a little bit slower going because of the nature of their system. But, um, well... I, I don't think the word authoritarian and democracy have gotten really abused and oversimplified. And I think, you know, when I look at what's really controlling governments of the so-called free and democratic West, right. it's not the people. I mean, no. you know, <laughs> we got no. a very, huh? no, they're both, they're both bad on, on both sides clearly. Uh, but, but I mean, to put, to have the, our hope to block, block this totalitarian takeover, this hegemony over the whole world is to have faith in these authoritarian governments seems kind of... Uh, well, I don't see them as authoritarian. The word authoritarian to me doesn't mean what it used to. It's like, what is, is it, what is authoritarian? Okay, well like, well, like for instance in China, I know that they have cameras everywhere and that uh, the freedom uh, varies uh, depending on how where you, what your situation is in China, but in general, uh, 
there's there's a lot less freedom in China than you might find in the United States. And I don't think of the United States as a free country. Would you agree with that? Uh, the second part I agree with. I don't find that the United States is a free country. The first part, though, is a little bit, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. In the sense that there are there are cameras, yes. The, the question is, what's the purpose of the camera and how, in what way does it impact the lives of the people living in a country that you have the cameras? What about the, the, the system they have for if you if you're for instance if you say something bad about the communists you're you're out of luck right and they have that whole system tied in with the cameras that's from from what i've heard from people who live who, who are chinese well there's difference between people who are chinese and people who live in china as well no i'm talking about people who live in china yeah, I, I know quite a, I've got hundreds of contacts in China, and I mean, the, the, me, the sense that I'm getting from those who are living there is not, like, number one, the CIA's put out a lot of messaging to try to give across the idea that China is this advanced, top-down, centralized social credit system where everybody is surveilled in a slave state. Right. Um, that's, that, that's, like, marketed and successfully so to the left and the right together, uh, right. mainstream, and increasingly also alternative. There's no centralized social credit system. Brian Berlitech did a great takedown of this whole thing. There is no singular social credit system anywhere in China. You have, um, and number two, there's hundreds of protests in China every day. That's part of the way that they've operated for decades and decades. Is Part of, part of the way it works is um, um, it's a protest culture. So every time that there's something that is being done dysfunctionally by um, a municipal, a provincial, or any other uh, uh representative um who's assigned a task to to play a role in carrying out tap you know whether development or whatever else if they don't do their job well there's constant surveying constant um protests that then are messaged and actually taken seriously by the government itself so there's this back and forth between the the masses and the the leadership um that is not there just to be sort of icing or glaze or something they actually you can see right now there's a track record. I've written about this. 4.6 million Chinese communist uh, officials, Chinese Communist Party officials, have been punished. In some cases, jailed, imprisoned, demoted, kicked out of the party over the past 10 years of the anti-corruption crackdown, for one thing. Um, and thousands and thousands uh, have been fired just for simply the, the fact that they did not uh, meet the needs of the people that they were assigned to uh, satisfy as far as building rail managing a transportation grid whatever that they were that old that they were job and what about uh russia did you say the same thing for hold on well it's two different it's two very different systems very different. in that sense yeah. uh yeah. try so the first thing about china is number one it's um it's a meritocracy it's right. you know you don't have to be part of like a closed family structure to become a leader in china you they have constant for example the testing system Anybody even in the lowest so-called peasant class has access to the same tests. And if you demonstrate excellence in terms of your understanding of classical studies and basic logic and creativity, and a lot of it is you have to compose poetry as well, uh, um, you will then be able to rise and excel um, even f compared, and you're going to be given the same opportunities to do that even from somebody who's born in a family of elites. So you can, there's a lot more openness to access um, governing um, situations based on your merits, your capacities, and to get to a governing position of like, let's say you want to be part of the Politburo of, of seven, very hard to do. 
or the the, the 27 person other standing committee a bit lower than that or the I mean, there's 96 million members of the Chinese Communist Party. It's a it's a lot of people. But to to become um, part of that, you have to um, become an engineer. You have to know engineering real world skills. Arming, like for example, Xi Jinping had to uh, since the 80s. He had to first uh, demonstrate aptitudes. Well, first having worked for years in a farming community, then managing a little local region of a rural district, and then working up, and you know, then becoming. Uh, a representative of a province, which he had to do for two provinces at a certain point, and then he went federal. But in China, unlike the West, like in the West, we've got a culture of mediocrity where you just have to be trained in in law or economics or some abstract, useless art of sophistry in order to become a president or just be part of the right, you know, skull and bones family, and you're good. No, whereas uh, or Zelensky, okay. you know, he just has to be a good comedian. No. Okay, uh, play the piano with his pants down. Whereas in China, they got. The biggest quantity of engineers uh, who have built things in the real world who are part of their their leadership. Mm-hmm. So it's a whole different thing. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. So number it's two, a, I, I get like, I get the idea. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> and then the other level question of freedom is is important because you you're not punished for criticizing the government. As I said about the protest culture, it's it is big. It's really just if you are the only people who uh, get punished for uh, doing things that are against the government. Or is if you are a high-level person in the Chinese Communist Party administration with um, responsibilities of management, and if you find if they find that you are on getting a, if you have a PayPal account tied to a CIA front group, which many have been found to be, and John Bolton even complained that since Xi Jinping's crackdown, they've had fewer and fewer assets to work with inside China, then you you will be purged. Like you will have your your job opportunities taken down quite a bit, but. There's not really beyond hearsay and anecdotal statements made from often people in the West. There's actually not really any instances that your average citizen who just complains of the government is ever really punished. It doesn't happen. It's just if you're if I you're on a tool of the, the West, yeah. yeah, that's a different story. Oh. Soros asset. It's yeah. a different story. Okay, I get it. Um, you made that yeah. very clear. Thank you. I want to ask you what your opinion is about the uh, the who bid for permission from every country to be able so that they can dictate when there's a pandemic and how all countries must comply with their orders like for example vaccine mandate yeah yeah there's a fight over civilization right now yeah the uh the bill gates death cultists who have chosen the the who is one of their one of not the only but one of their primary globalist bodies or instruments to try to like infuse controls onto nations of the earth they want that they want to get rid of sovereignty of nations to decide what's good for their own people and they've been working at this for many generations and that that authorization to global uh central command structures above anything that that are to get uh get the get that it get, get those agreements from as many countries as possible and if that happens that could be game over i would think well, I would definitely set history back quite a ways, yeah. And it, it's not just the World Health Organization. They've also been working the uh, the environmental, like the COP 20, 27, 26, all the way to COP 14. That whole um, thing is... Wait, wait. Yeah, so they, they want to get that top-down imposition. Uh, um, and so, so far, it's been thwarted on the climate uh, side of things. To, you know, they, they have wanted to shut down, you know, carbon industrial civilization, decarbonize and have these green globalist bodies from the top telling all of the nations how much they had to contract their population and consumption patterns 
in accordance with this these ideas that you know if we produce less carbon we're going to make the world you know become cooler by or stop global warming by a factor of 1.5 degrees by 2050 which is all just make believe they're just making things up but they're doing it for the effect of reducing population um so far that's been thwarted by countries mostly india china africa have stopped that from happening so far but they're but they've now been trying for the past three years to use the world health organization to in another way which so far luckily has been thwarted in in the sense that there's been no legally enforceable um mechanisms that have been permitted to be brought online but they're still trying let me just uh take that a little into another uh area which would be like there is the uh, BlackRock uh, group that apparently has uh, trillions of dollars at their command. Mm. And uh, would you say that they are more or less calling the shots for everybody? Like who controls the WEF, for example, uh, and, and, and organizations like that? Uh, it seems like they're uh, controlled by, by the people who have in infinite amounts of money, seemingly. And they can they can do whatever they want with impunity. Well, yeah, I mean, BlackRock is not themselves controlling. They're not a causal nexus. Like if you look at Larry Fink, he's a uh, World Economic Forum young leader. Um, so in that sense, um, they've got a, they have as an institution a role to play as a form of you know mercenary on behalf of a, a master class. Uh, BlackRock itself is just that. It's like, you know, it's a hedge fund. It's a bit of an everything operation, real estate. They're buying up all of the, I mean, so much real estate in North America. They're buying up Ukraine. They've got personal contracts with JP Morgan to like pretty much own all of the Ukrainian economy, um, much of Canada as well. Vanguard is another one. But again, they're just used as outfits to dominate and control. They're not themselves uh uh, making the decisions or the policy, really. So who who do you think is making making the decisions and for those kind of? Well, look, we got to look at well, what is the World Economic Forum, and in that sense, uh, like you know, Klaus Schwab is another like cardboard cutout, a useful sociopath who was selected because he had the right stuff when he was a student under Henry Kissinger at uh, Harvard. Back in the 1960s, in a CIA-sponsored international program that uh, Kissinger was teaching, part of Kissinger's job was to simply look for talents, um, groom them, and uh, give them assignments, his students, um, within the machine that he had sold his soul to a few decades earlier, you know, and Claude Schwab fit the bill. He got a job, uh, an assignment. Yeah. Um, he was also uh, groomed by another one of his uh, twisted... Uh, teachers named Maurice Strong, who he attributes to being his mentor, who was a co-founder of the World Economic Forum, sort of the godfather of the modern Green New Deal, Maurice Strong, um, Canadian, sorry. And, uh, but both of them, Kissinger and Maurice Strong, were both Rockefeller agents as well. Maurice Strong was recruited when he was working um, in the Rock in New York Rockefeller Center, and he became friends with David Rockefeller and was assigned a certain task to manage a bunch of petro petrochemical and coal uh, mining industries in the late 50s. He became the head of power corporation of, of Quebec that ran at the time most of Quebec's power. Kissinger, early on, you know, he uh, was a traumatized, nihilistic Nietzschean um, scholar um, who found himself very quickly immersed within CIA-funded operations in the 1950s around the same time as, as Maurice Strong. He soon found himself a member of the early Bilderberger group. Um, and so... 
you know, that gets us a little bit more at the causal nexus. So the Bilderberger group that was sort of the agency that was a senior, sort of the senior controlling mechanism um, to what later became the World Economic Forum as a junior partner of a lower level doppelganger of the Bilderberger groups. Mm -hmm. That was set up by Prince Bernhard, the former Nazi, um, to be an, an, a coordinating body meeting annually amongst people who were expected to become servants of the global agenda before world government. So again, yeah, you have to look at things like that if you want to get it. Like, well, what is the controlling hand of these agencies that carry out the dirty work financially, like BlackRock or Vanguard or Goldman Sachs? You know, yeah. you got to look at those entities. Well, I've noticed that in a lot of your uh, your your works, uh, you promote the idea of sovereign nations. That, yeah, as as opposed to the idea of the WEF of eliminating that. And uh, my question is, like, you're aware of the uh, existence of what they call economic hitman, right? Economic hitman mm. is somebody mm. who the CIA sends in, in an appointment with the leader of a country, and and they uh, offer them a big loan that they cannot pay back, and in that way they control the country. And if yeah. they refuse, they tell them that they will be murdered, and they are murdered. And uh, yeah. So it's an easy way for them to control governments, to subvert governments and corrupt governments. Yeah. And when, as long as you have a vertical type of governing, it's the simplest thing for them to continue doing that. So that's what I'm wondering is like, why do you put much faith in uh, sovereign nations when, again, these people are not going to go away. They, they will be able to do the same thing they've done for centuries, just through raw intimidation, control a whole country. They don't have to have a mm. war with it. Mm. So what what would you say to that? That's why I, pr I believe in hierarchical, in, uh, in horizontal governance. Yeah, well, I don't think that, um, like, I'm not ideologically um, an absolutist when it comes to sovereign nation states. My, like, the way I look at sovereign nation states um, within, uh, within a context of universal history, and as you know, you know, we've spoken before, I, I try to, I try to have, I'm, I like context and I, that means both in space and, and in time. And so I try to keep a deep, as much of a, a wave of history as possible, as many thousands of years that my mind can research in, in some sketch in my mind. And what I've, what I've personally identified as an important causal um, nexus of the shaping of the contours of history is the, as you pointed out at the beginning, the, um, the yearning and actualization of, of impulses towards freedom of the both individual to express of the individual and uh, of the collective at the same time to express their uh, actualize their higher potentials um, as creatures made in a divine way, right? That that have these creative powers. They can only work if you have a spirit and a culture of love, of hope, of faith in the future, of you know self knowledge, self awareness. So if those cultural dynamics are there, and you have certain material conditions also generally being expressed, you know you're you're not. You're not insecure about whether you're going to have water tomorrow or, or, you know, whether your 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 baby's going to die of, of sub unnecessary disease, like basic material conditions. Right. Um, generally, you will be able to be a better person every day of your life and, and have more political freedom, all of these good things. So you have this other impulse against that to try to to pull us back into a situation of feudalism that's always been there since ancient times. Um and that's based on a certain concept of human beings built around master-slave relations, a certain idea of a cosmology that's a fixed cosmology of a universe of decay, of uh, 
of nihilism. Ultimately, yeah, you'd say the yeah. nihilism. There's these so many things. Themes running throughout history. Themes, yeah, that dovetail, that 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 create a sort of tension, and it's not Manichaean in that sense because it's it's like, it's it's not this idea that good has an equal balance to evil. I don't see that. I, I see that all there is is good, but then you've got free will with humans that are animated by concepts that may or may not be right or wrong, and if they're wrong concepts with wrong passions that are associated with your concept of of what you want to be as an elite born to rule over the many because you're just born to a better family with better stuff uh yeah you're you're gonna create distortions aka what some might call um evil especially if you're aware of the of the what's being done in to satisfy your desires if you're aware of it oh so much worse than just you know being you know a fool uh <laughs> so anyway um part of that process I see as being the emergence of people who decided to organize themselves in a way that allowed them to do better and better forms of battle with this highly centralized parasitical oligarchy, which has always been this very central, internationally expanded force, um, utilizing similar techniques over thousands of years, maybe refining those techniques, but doing the same thing ultimately. And so in in more recent times coming out of feudalism, I, I see that the, I, the, the organization of ourselves in a harmonized way to carry out um, collective action against the oligarchy in our defense took the form of the nation state structure as a sovereign entity, especially coming with the, um, the period of the fin late 15th century, um, which grew a little bit more at, in 1648 with what put down or, or provided a, a way to kind of end the, the 30 years religious wars of Europe. But it was never perfect. It was never a finalized battle. The oligarchy didn't go away. They continued to find new ways of infiltration, subversion from within, as you pointed out, into the modern times with the economic hitmen as, as one component. So ultimately, in the broader sweep of things, I think that the nation-state structures were a stepping stone towards something much, much better. And in that sense, for me, I look pr primarily at culture because what allows for a nation to become infiltrated and corrupted um, one of the key uh, things that we have is white blood cells to to uh, identify those points of decay and corruption um, are is is the cultural field. The, the, what do you have a, a culture that cherishes um, self-respect, the love of the future, the respect for the past, the caring of the whole that you're a part of? If you have a culture that encourages those things through, um, better practices in the arts, in literature, in science, in the stories that we tell, the, you know, then you're, you're generally going to be able to create a situation whereby many Martin Luther King Jr.'s or Malcolm X's or John F. Kennedy's emerge. And if one is taken down, you, you have many people who are qualified to fill that vacuum and, and pick up the torch. Whereas when you don't, not only can you not really get very many such exceptional people who are willing to die for their principles, but if they do die, there's going to be very like fewer and fewer people who are qualified to then take it yeah. up and take up the leadership. But when you say that uh, a lot of the cultures have really been contaminated with the toxic controllers uh, for so many years, uh, controlling the education and the, the whole thing, the whole culture, so that now that we have a lot of people who are who are desperate and and traumatized and crazy and all this kind of thing. So it's the the cultures that, that might remain are very remote cultures, maybe in the jungle somewhere. 
who have a, like here in Ecuador, we have these indigenous tribes who do have these sanctioned cultures and they're constantly embattled to maintain them because the government is doing everything possible to ruin them. And so that's uh, that's uh, another area of my activism here in Ecuador. But uh, that's that's like uh, you can't can't really depend on cultures anymore because of that. I think you have to have the generations that create a, a, a beautiful culture. Well, I, I'm trying to like I like here's the thing. So I for many years of my political identity, I was very much um, only top down thinking. I was I was much more. Um, I had an underdeveloped appreciation for the necessity for the bottom-up um, organizing, bottom-up um, creative creative problem solving. I've increasingly, the last four or five years, come to try to find that balance, and I'm still working on it. But I'm I'm trying to. I've noticed that there's a problem of of extremes in general, where some people try to do like what I I used to do, which is always just think about abstract top-down solutions, and or inversely, forget about top-down, only think bottom-up. And I think either one will tend to not provide a, a, a well-rounded holistic uh, approach. I think. Well, yeah, you know, sort of, I mean, with, when you, with, right. Well, uh, horizontal doesn't mean that everything has to be horizontal. Like if you have a hospital, you can have somebody who is managing the hospital, you know, or if you can have hierarchies within a horizontal, if it seems like a good idea, you know, but generally. Yeah, like yeah, you can't get around that. Yep. You have, you have students, you have little kids in a classroom, you're going to have a teacher who's going to know more than the kids. And, you know, that, that virtue of just the, the, the teacher knowing more is going to be in a position to create a natural, there's natural hierarchies and then there's unnatural hierarchies. And I think to find that, that balance of like, you know, <laughs> the nat you're not going to let the kid necessarily decide, you know, uh, everything that they want to do. They'll, they're just going to eat candy every day for, for supper. Um, well, it's going to take a lot for the kid to learn that, oh, no, I should actually enjoy eating good food. And that takes a bit of time for that discovery to have. <laughs> um, yeah. But then that's the thing with freedoms, right? Like with real freedoms come responsibilities. Uh, there, it's not just. Yeah, exactly. They uh, go together. Yeah. And let me ask you this. Um, what? Um, where was it? Uh, what, what do you think is the relationship between the mafia and the CIA. Do you have any ideas if, on that? Anybody who wants to really know the answer to that one, I'll say I'll say my thoughts. But Whitney Webb has written uh, an incredible two-part volume uh, series called "One Nation Under Blackmail." People yeah. need to read that 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 book series. It's really good. Um, yeah, the, it's one thousand pages or something. But it's worth it's a bit, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit broken up into two books. Yeah. Um, I read, well, I read, I read volume one and a little bit of volume two. I'm, I'm very impressed. Um, obviously, like, there's things I would criticize, but overall, it's a really great introduction to the integration early on, going to the 20s of uh, intelligence agencies and uh, and mafia systems, even, even earlier. She goes to the 1890s. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, oh, I've seen her they're, they're talk. Oh, you have? Yeah, they're good. Yeah, I saw your interview with, as a matter of fact, but also other ones. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, she's she's so great. No, no she's great. No, no. Yeah, it, the um, yeah, she she really lays out the case nicely that these are two sides of one one beast. They've never been two separate things, and um, you know whether it's Samuel Bronfen or the Bronfen clan that came in, they became you know early on many many different families coming in from Europe. At the beginning of the the twentieth century, were uh, were were tested um, 
They were tested by those handlers who had created instruments to bring them in, whether it was from Italy, whether it was from Eastern Europe, and to uh, create organized criminal activity as part of um, an operation that would um, facilitate the destruction of the culture as well as the maintenance of, of an international machinery that would be rooted in what was done to China effectively and also India in the 19th century to the Opium Wars. So the Opium Wars was sort of like the, the proto-experiment, uh, a laboratory, the first and second Opium Wars, that uh, created organized crime with British-controlled uh, Hong Kong groups. This is where the triads come from, is throughout the, the fires of the, the Opium Wars, centered again in what the British ended up controlling for a century, Hong Kong after the second Opium Wars, as a colony of Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, still to this day, it's called the CIA of the Pacific. <laughs> Um, and, uh, okay. and so what they did yeah. is they created, um, a, a situation of dependence where in the late 19th century or even sorry, the late 18th century, India and China were the two, uh, most advanced countries economically in the world by a, a large magnitude, far, far more than Europe, far more than America. It was China number one, India number two, uh, India was the global leader in textile manufacturing, architecture, arts, China, similar. I mean, it was, it was quite progressive. That was destroyed by the British in infiltration of both countries. Um, what they recognized early on with their um, American loyalist counterparts in the United States, some of these Eastern blue blood, Both they called them Boston Brahmins, the, the, the American, you know, upper crust families who were always loyal to the British East India Company and foreign office, never, never real Americans. They created the uh, a situation whereby they first destroyed India's textiles. They made it illegal for India effectively to even have textiles. They cut off the hands of Indian workers who were specialists, so that Britain would have full control and monopoly of of textile manufacturing. India then would be able to make up for some of its lost revenue by producing opium, which was then sold to China. It was fed to China. Um, in order to destroy the spirit of the people. It was spiritual warfare and create also organized corruption um, from it, all that infiltrated all the way up to the, the Qing Dynasty courts of the, of the higher command. Um, so they, they got really good at that. And that's where HSBC, which today even is still at the heart of international narcotics trafficking, heroin trafficking, is still HSBC, a London-based, they call it Hongshang Bank of Commerce. It was set up in 1865 uh, to organize and launder international drug money. It continued all the way through the 20th century doing the same thing to this very day. Like I said, it's still a huge force um, with other Canadian banks. Okay. So yeah, they did ahead. the same thing in America too. So they started organizing that template in America starting at the early 20th century. It, it worked very closely with the CIA, FBI, with Mayor Lansky, and, and it just did what it did, organizing terrorist activity, funding black budget operations to destabilize governments, other things. So, yeah. Let me ask you this: um, If the uh, if the oligarchs uh, really control the United States government, why was why is there so much concern about uh, why was there so much concern about Trump winning the presidency? Does it really matter much whether a Democrat or Republican sits in the White House? Sure. Yeah. I mean, not not in the sense of left and right politics. Um, Democrats and Republicans, as you see today, are are, are converging. You got the uh, um, traders on both sides um, working together. Lynch, Liz Cheney and uh, 
and uh, Biden are all championing the exact same foreign policy. John Bolton, a Republican, is championing the the war with both China and Russia and Korea and Iran and everything. So, um, yeah, you got you got both sides now in the Democratic Party. I think that since JFK and his brother Bobby were killed, there's been all not a lot to work with. They they were really selected much earlier on to be infiltrated and taken over by this virus to become an instrument of of uh, of empire. But the same thing was being done at the, throughout the, the Cold War with the Republican Party, too. Um, the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln is a different Republican Party from uh, George Bush uh, Sr. or Jr. Now, Trump wasn't really... Um, when you look at the policies uh, overall, it definitely was... It represented a, a wrench in the gears of a machine that was given a certain momentum and trajectory under Bush, Obama, and Hillary Clinton was supposed to carry on a certain orientation that uh that was derailed in many ways under the trump uh, period and uh i mean the best thing that can be said about trump is that he did he was not a willful a willful traitor to his nation he didn't want to destroy his nation whereas i think other other uh forces don't give a shit they're they're perfectly happy overseeing as long as they've got a good position in the uh, the feudal architecture they're they're perfectly happy killing killing americans he didn't want to do that but how do you account for Trump uh, supporting the vaccine thing? Okay, so there's two things. So let's do a, a quick thing. Um, as far as the vaccine thing, I don't know whether it's just, I, I don't know if it's blank spots or whether it's intimidation. Um, I'm not sure what that is. That That is disastrously stupid. I'm, I'm And I've openly come out criticizing him, as many people have. Now, it I doesn't mean that I think that he was always a fraud. I just think that he really messed up there, and I don't know what's going, what the hell's going on in his world um, on that issue. What I do know is that he did pledge to defund, to take the U.S. out of the World Health Organization um, in 2020, and I see no evidence that he was lying on that point. He even started making big maneuvers to to do that, to pull funding, and with a full full takeout uh, were he to be reelected. Um, number two, so in that sense, if you're not beholden to the World Health Organization, I know like he's not the draconian forced mandate type of person. He, he always fought against that, and he surrounded himself with Dr. Paul Alexander, if I look at a lot of the people who he brought in as specialists in opposition to Fauci, and I look at what they've been doing even after, in the last two years, they're some of the, the best people who have been risking their lives fighting against this um, medical dictatorship ideology. So there's that stuff to keep that in mind. Um, and there's things you, you do when you're playing the game if you're actually in a position of power that, and you're dealing with powerful evil forces as that you have to navigate through and, and interface with. That me, it's difficult for me to put myself in the shoes. I've never had power before. So it's still, I'm, I'm sort of like trying to triangulate my mind on something I don't understand fully. So you got to keep that in mind. Yeah. The other thing too is like, if I look at what he, what Trump did consistently policy wise, and I've got a pretty solid mapping, I've, I've actually made a documentary that's going to be released next week uh, going through a lot of this. Um, he took the U.S. out of its obligations to ab abide by anything NATO was doing. Um, he was pulling the U.S. He, he destroyed NAFTA's, uh, the, the, the core of NAFTA was that it took the power from nation states away and put, gave it to private corporations so nations couldn't use protectionism, direct credit, which is what he gave back to the power of nation states if they chose to use it um, to protect their, their native industries and agriculture. NAFTA had destroyed that completely. Um, there's things he did that involved, you know, um, 
working with Russia and China, work, forcing the U.S. military to work with Russia in Syria. Uh, he retracted two-thirds of the funding to the National Endowment for Democracy front groups that the CIA had been using for 35 years to overthrow governments they don't like. He supported, he also went to war with George Soros, and he called out the Federal Reserve. He called for breaking up the Wall Street banks with Glass-Steagall, but he didn't. He was not given the, the, the support to do that. But he said it, and that was interesting. Um, the other things, too, is he went with uh, the idea of Arctic development to create a situation whereby Russia, China, and the U.S. would work to economically develop the Arctic instead of building missiles, which is what the current administration and Trudeau are moving towards in preparation for an attack on Russia from the north. He became friends with, with Kim Jong-un, which retracted the excuse that the U.S. military needed to have missile systems in South Korea pointed at Russia and China using the idea that North Korea was loco, you couldn't work with them, and so you had to have a, a military presence in China's backyard. He ate cheeseburgers with Kim Jong-un and took away the idea that, that North Korea was a threat. Um, he worked also to, to uh, broker the U.S.-China trade agreement, which was derailed with COVID, but he you know went to the Forbidden City, was given red carpet treatment with Xi Jinping and his wife, and, they, and China agreed to buy $200 billion of U.S. finished goods as part of a rehabilitation of the destroyed industrial base of Philadelphia, Detroit, and American agriculture, which desperately needed the, the China growth um, dynamic to justify the, the rehabilitation of those industries that had been consciously destroyed over 50 years of globalization. So that would have been a, a key part of that uh, healing process. Again, COVID derailed most of this. Unfortunately, and uh, a bunch of, you know, if I look at the the amount of Soros, Malik Brown, Black Lives Matter, BLM, you know, uh, Antifa operations, which receive money from George Soros, um, the type of voting machine manipulation from things like Dominion, which were proven to be complicit in election fraud in the U.S., as well as Smartmatic, which it's somewhat tied to through George Soros's collaborator, uh, Lord Mark Malik Brown, who used to manage Smartmatic and has run election fraud in South America, Asia, all over the world. It took on Dominion voting machines, took on the Smartmatic operating system back in 20, 2007. Um, there's so much effort that went into putting Biden and and the whole Hillary Clinton machine back in power and overthrowing Trump that for me, the idea that he was a controlled opposition just doesn't hold up to the evidence of what I've seen over the four years that he was throwing wrenches the, the new world order machine so as far as his his support for vaccinations that's the dumbest thing and it should be criticized and called out absolutely yeah i, I don't okay mm. that, that that's a good uh summary i also just to throw this in because i don't want to take up too much time of your time and anybody's watching this um uh, if anything to say about robert malone well my, my my approach with malone is i like to give him the benefit of the doubt and I, I think that Malone has said things that I support as far as his opposition to draconian vaccination mandates and things that are uh, immoral on the uh, the medical dictatorship front. I think that's okay. There's certain things that I think are outside of his field of expertise that I think that it were wise that he probably should not be chiming in on in terms of his uh, attempts to... Uh, help people understand fifth generation warfare and controlled opposition and intelligence operations and uh, the battle between, you know, ideologies, the Plato versus Aristotle, of which he says 
because Plato is the evil one and Aristotle is the good one and uh, Jackson versus Hamiltonian systems of economics, which it's like, how did he become a specialist in all of these different fields? And China, and of course, why China is at the heart of the deep state. Bill Gates is an operative agent of China and China has worked to single-handedly uh, undermine Western dem democratic values. Like, where where are you becoming an expert on all of these fields and you're all, and it's all equally, it smells of high-level intelligence agencies, while at the same time, you are personally suing the Brevins, actual heroes who have spent decades successfully defending human beings against Big Pharma, and the, you know, like, the, these are real American heroes who are being sued for $25 million. They're being destroyed by, by Malone because they criticized his use of uh, mass formation uh, psychosis. One of them is an actual trained psychiatrist. They didn't agree with how he used that term they criticized it now 25 million guards you're gonna you're gonna destroy these people while at the same time you're saying that anybody who 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 treats um any any representative of the truth movement the resistance as being a controlled opposition is it themselves that's proof that you know that that person who's making the accusation is controlled opposition you're, you're also declaring war on peter mccullough another yeah. very like right. serious person you're, you're suing him too like I, there's a lot of weird things that I think Malone should probably pull back on and and stick with what he knows. Otherwise, he's going to cause more damage and confusion than he. Uh, okay. He should. That's, thank you for that. That that yeah. That's there's a lot of contradictions there. Are you concerned about uh, surveillance and targeted individuals for your own life? You know about that. I mean, I've come to terms with the fact that we live. I live in Canada. It's part of the Five Eyes. I I presume that, you know, my my personal privacy is not something I take for granted. Um, whether it's my my devices, my phone, my computer, my my TV. I don't know. I mean, I just gotta, you know, um, be clear with what I'm saying that is in alignment with reason and conscience. Um, yeah. I mean, what okay. can I do? Well, you could you could go to open source, or you could use pla alternative platforms, but you, you might not have the audience this, at the at this point. You know, actually, that's something we're working on, but uh, it's not so simple. And yeah, so you can right now we're taking our chances because this is public. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I I encourage people to use encryption. I have encrypted emails and uh, things like that. To what degree it actually works, I don't know. Um, but I, you know, don't give them, don't make it easy on them. If you can avoid it, <laughs> try to, yeah, be smart about uh, your communications. And um, just to kind of wind down, because this is getting to be long. I don't know how long. Yeah, it's way long. Um, do you, um, so as far as like the events that are going on in the world, the major geopolitical things, the war and, and so many things, uh, do you see that as a, chaotic thing or do you think that it's more or less under it's it's controlled to, to a large degree what do you think what you know you, you understand i don't what I mean? think like i i there there's some that are and there there's some that are controlled and some that are some things that aren't controlled in that sense yeah. um you know if if i uh if i i think according to the the original New World Order script that was being celebrated back in the early '90s with the dismantling of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, when Kissinger and Bush Senior and Joe Biden were all championing, saying, "Hey, we've made it! It's the New World Order! Hurrah!" Um, there was a sort of formula and script that was going to define the consolidation 
of residual uh, resistance under a, a world government that was yeah. finally going to cons- consummate itself um, very, very quickly. NATO was going to become global very quickly. Would become the the sole you know monopoly over nuclear arsenals, over military power. Uh, banking was going to be fully controlled by the Bank of International Settlements. Is the sort of the 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 yeah. the octopus head coordinating all of its tentacles. Um, so you know that didn't really turn out the way the 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 ensuing 30 years actually played out um things didn't go according to plan so i think that according to the original program they would have preferred that you know russia just remain under the yeltsin 90s perestroika program that would have been perfectly happy they would have been happy with that that trajectory and you know Part of that involved Russia breaking itself up into like 13 micro federations of Balkanite um, micro states with little ethno nationalist dominant uh, uh, forces because Russia has 83 um, different ethnicities in Russia. It's a huge place. And they wanted to sort of carve it up the way they did for the former Soviet space, you know, and and then create little mini conflicts between um, adjacent ethnic groups, right? Harvesting and cultivating the you could always find pains of the past, of past generations that you could then bring to the present and induce hostility. That's the way they work. They did. They had the same program for China. They would have preferred that China remain a, a sweatshop slave labor state the way it was designed in the 1980s under when George Soros had his personal um, lackey as the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party in the 80s before China woke up and kicked Soros out. They would have preferred that that should be the forever model. Now, it didn't work out that way. If it had worked out that way, I don't think they would have had a necessity of doing what they did with 9-11, with the Libya overthrow, with Iraq overthrow, with Syria, the current program to do all of the chaos as part of asymmetrical warfare in the underbelly of Eurasia. They wouldn't have needed to do that because they would have had the dominance and thus they would have lacked the fear of a rising Russia, China, and Iran relationship, with Sa- which is what Samuel P. Huntington said would be the greatest threat to the New World Order, would be the the, the only possible a challenge he wrote in 1997. No, sorry, not, not Huntington. This was Zbigniew Brzezinski. He said it would be the potential alliance of a Persia, China, Russia, uh, a civilizational dynamic. That's the only thing. He said we could never let that happen, which is why the Project for New American Century crowd that came in with Dick Cheney had formulated a whole plan for America in the 21st, the world in the 21st century under U.S. hegemony with the core uh, rivals had to be subdued Russia, China, and Iran. So that was why, and that is now beginning to actually take a more met, uh, mature relationship, especially in the last seven or so years um, under the Belt and Road Initiative, the different uh, systems that have been put online with the BRICS Plus that is now um, seducing or, or at least um, creating a, an alternative for countries that have formerly been playing a very nasty role with the machine like Saudi Arabia, Turkey, who are all ultimately realizing that they are flushable, expendable um, assets. They're not they're not essential. And the only way they're going to survive the coming storm is to go to countries that actually don't want to flush them um, and want to help them develop their real economies instead of just being, you know, uh, supporters of terrorism and, and oil speculation. So you have a whole bunch of a new center of gravity that is much more, I think, healthy as far as the long-term survival interests of the species, which is forcing uh, certain decisions to be made around like what we're seeing with this absurd policy in uh, Ukraine, in the U.S. military industrial 
oh, saber rattling in uh, the Pacific, you know, either Taiwan, Japan, South Korea are all being used to create a NATO of a NATO of the Pacific. Japan has gotten rid of its pacifist constitution, as increasingly has Germany, um, which is being re remilitarized again in preparation for war both with Russia and with China. And, you know, you a lot of effort to try to destabilize Africa as a continent, too. There's a battle over Africa. Same thing for South America too, right? There's a big battle over what direction South America or Latin America with with the CELAC countries are going to go. Um, a lot of intimidation by the bank figures that want to keep them under the in the cage. So I don't know, uh, but okay. In that sense, I don't know what I'm saying. Like, kind of it is planned, and kind of some of it's not planned. It's it, yeah, you can't you know. plan it. Uh, yeah, there's always going to be that, but there is uh, the reality that after a hundred years of having this wet dream of controlling all of humanity from the eugenicists and Nazis from yeah. early 1900s and before, that now it seems they have everything in order to do it with the control of the American military, the CIA, the media, the money. Right. They have all, they have, it seems like they have everything they need to do it. And uh, it's going to, it's going to be materially they got, they have like a lot of power with the military systems but if you look at the the mediocrity culturally like the the they've gotten to a point of such decadence and decay that they can't really um the the best people that they can find to to be the um their warriors their their mercenaries of the technocracy and of the military are transgender fanatics who are all into post-truthism, you know, like Schultz, if you look at Schultz, he's actually stressing not only about the oncoming war with Russia that Germany is supposed to be doing as, as a slave colony, but he's like trying to figure out what woman can we get to fill the spot of defense minister of Germany who's going to be in charge of military policy um, because we have to balance our executive with equal male-female representation. That's his priority is balancing male-female representation. And it's like, even if you were serious, if you were serious about carrying out a fight with Russia, which is absurd, but I'm just saying, if you were serious, you would find who's most qualified, not like which which woman. So they're, 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 they're purging the military of people who actually had competence to do things because they weren't in conformity. They either didn't want to get injected with experimental drugs or they didn't want to adapt to, uh, you know, all of these other weird ethics so don't really and they've they've expended most of their they've used up all of their cards in this disaster of ukraine which according to their original plan was supposed to end a lot earlier with russia defeated uh economically early on um last year russia was supposed to be destroyed according to the computer models they were using um there was expected to be um, a russian oligarch um coup d'etat against putin which John Bolton and, and others had been celebrating and cultivating, that didn't happen. They had the same thing where they were, hope, they were hoping that the Western Ling, um, leaders in China were going to overthrow Xi Jinping. That didn't happen. So it's like nothing has really been working according to plan, especially since Libya was overthrown. How do you, how do you sort of like... Do you have some insider information to know all of that? Or how do you I, know that? I look at think tank reports. I look at, I follow a lot of garbage media messaging to see like what they're putting out. Um, I look at Rand reports, which is very useful to read since Rand is sort of at the heart of a lot of the, the foreign policies. If you want to know what the US policy is going to be next year, look at what Rand reports are producing this year. And, uh, uh, or Brookings Institute as well is a useful one to look at. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, that's nice to know. Listen, I could be talking to you 
for a long time with so many questions, but I don't think it's fair to do that. So let me just end with one last question, which would be, what is the single most important message that you would like to share with the viewers? I think that that's a great way to end it. I think that, that uh, with every major crisis is an opportunity to uh, self-inspect, to look at both the world outside of us and the world inside of us at the same time to think about what caused this to happen, what sorts of normalized folly uh, was permitted, was accepted and tolerated as we became worse. Wait, um, wait let me interrupt you there yep. for a second. Yep. Because I, I, I want to make the point that to really understand what's going on or to understand even a person, you have to know their history. And that's why, that's why, you, why you are so valuable to everyone because you provide that history that people don't know. Otherwise, you just have a superficial understanding of things or you've propagandized by the media. So it's so important. But go ahead. I just want to throw that. That's sweet. You. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, you know, I, I, that's the know thyself, right? Know, know, know history of as much as you can of, of the world you're a part of, of the, the people, the collective community that, that you are but a part of, essential part of. And then in this, at the same time as you're looking at, at the, the, the times that we got better and the times that we got worse even before we were born, um, try to take those lessons and, and look at the times you got better and the times you got worse in the, in the course of the lives that, you know, while we've been uh, experiencing here on Earth. Um, try to see ourselves as a bit of a microcosm of the species in that sense. And, you know, and look to every time that we've gotten better from a time that we've gotten worse in our lives, uh, what were we doing? What were the the psycho-spiritual, the way of thinking, the way of feeling? And try to make that more of the focus and understand that 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 goodness better as we redefine um, what we want to be in the future, looking back on ourselves in the present and thinking, okay, do I, do I see myself in next year, five years, 20 years, towards the last days of my life uh, um, as being, as, as, as do I, do I look back upon my present self as being something I'm proud of? Um, or, you know, like, how do I want to be myself? How do I want to be seen, felt by my kids, my grandkids, um, you know, historians, well, thousands of years in the future, looking at the, the world in the present, did, did the world in the present go bad or go good because of what I did or didn't do? You know, like think, think of yourself from multiple angles like that. And uh, it'll, it'll generally get better in, in some, you will become ever, what I can say is I can't, I can't, I have no guarantees about where the world is going to go in our lifetimes, but I do know that we will be in harmony with the laws of the universe in that sense, which is good for the conscience, good for the mind, good for creativity. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. all right. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I think yeah. we both agree that if, uh, if people could, um, could really know themselves better, they would really be pushing for a world that's based on caring for other people or inward love. And Amen. so that's kind of a hard thing to pull off. So we have to hope that they'll do it on their own, I guess. So thanks yeah. so much, Matt, for a great interview. I really appreciate it. I hope we can have yeah, some thanks. more in the future. Yeah, looking forward to it too. It's always a pleasure. Okay. Bye, Tano. Ciao.